The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek Episode 70. Captain DeBridge, Spock here. Make it so. Surrender is not an option. Attention crew of the Enterprise, this is James Kirk. We are all explorers, driven to know what's over the horizon, what's beyond our own shores. We would have helped you get home if you had asked. That's who Starfleet is. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're discussing the Enterprise episode, Terra Nova. Joining me today on the panel are Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going? Very well. And Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, remember to like The Secrets of Star Trek on Facebook at facebook.com slash starquestmedia. Retweet the episodes on Twitter where we're at SQPN and leave us comments. We, that all helps to get the, the show out to a larger audience and brings people in. Um, and especially when we have a great episode like this one that we're about to talk about. Uh, this mm. is uh, Terra Nova we're, we're discussing. It's not the uh, one season Fox Network <laughs> show about an alternate <laughs> world uh, with dinosaurs and people. Uh, no, this is a. A uh, Enterprise episode from October 2001, again, the first season of Enterprise. And the basic plot is The Lost Colony of Roanoke. <laughs> is, am I wrong? Ish. Yeah. Ish. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Pretty much. Uh, now, I got to say right up front. So, Brandon Braga was the executive producer uh, of Enterprise and, and you know, the, the guy in charge of all things Star Trek at, at Paramount at the time. And later on, years later, would say this was the worst episode of Enterprise. That he oh, found it no, boring. that's clearly not the case. There are much worse episodes than this. <laughs> yeah. This is yeah, not I, a great episode, but it's, it's not, not the great. worst. Yeah, now he, uh, yeah, that's his opinion. He thought this was the worst. Uh, of course, he didn't write this, so um, it, it might be that what, something he wrote was the worst episode. Well, but, a, uh, a Night in Sickbay and the finale are both real good candidates yeah. for horrible, much worse <laughs> than this episode. I have in my notes, my very first note on this episode is mostly harmless. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. You know? Well, that's the thing. There's nothing surprising in this episode. Nothing mm -mm. really happens. There's no real revelations. We don't have anything really all that. I mean, they, it's sort of paint by numbers, right? It, it, paint by numbers is another of my notes. Yes. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's, I mean, especially the ending. It's this paint by numbers ending where what the con so they've they come to this world that was a former colony of Earth that was set up mm -hmm. 70 something years ago. And they and they lost contact with the colony, and it turns out that the people are living underground because there was a comet that or asteroid that slammed into the northern hemisphere of the planet and irradiated the northern hemisphere, so the people had to live underground. And they all of the only the young children survived, and so they grew up not trusting humans from Earth because mm -hmm. their parents had been dissidents. And they don't even identify as humans. And so when the humans on Enterprise show up, there's this immediate hostility. And eventually we have to overcome the hostility by having our characters put in dangerous situations where they have to trust each other. Mm -hmm. In fact, 
at one point, Archer even says, now it's your turn to trust me. Right. And it's just a paint-by-numbers Star Trek empathy reconciliation plot. Right. right. But the only only thing really interesting about it is is just the you know the ideas of the first human colonists with In early warp space. drive. You know, yeah. you know, it talks about how it took them nine years each way. So you know, and it, it, but they really don't explain is that at warp one, which means it would it's nine light years from Earth, or is it warp two, which it's more exponential, or it's, you know the speeds go up from there. Well, they it was said twenty it was light less, years away. Yeah, they said it was less than twenty light years away. Yeah. So. Presumably, that's warp two or something. Yeah, because right. it, it, we know it's post Vulcan first contact, so we know at least they ha- humans have warp drive. But again, you know, it, w- very early warp drive technology. This is the part of the premise that really kind of I, I was I had a hard time dealing with. So I like the idea, again. I agree with you. I like the idea of the first humans to colonize deep space. They they had already colonized the moon. They'd already colonized Mars. But this was let's go out into the deep. Uh, and like you said, it took nine years to get there, which, you know, it's, a, on a gener- it's essentially a generation ship, not exactly a generation, but it's that idea of a long-term spaceship. And mm-hmm. they've been out of contact for 70 years. And the Terranovans were so- 70, yep. And the Terranovans were so angry that they want- Earth wanted to send a couple hundred more people to their planet you know, that, hey, we've it's our planet. It's a planet. <laughs> if the- yeah. If- if a hundred, couple hundred more people were on the other side of the planet from you, you'd never know they were there. Like, exactly. Well, and actually, if you've only got a couple hundred people, you have a severe population bottleneck. You actually yes. would be wanting those for the stability of your gene pool in future generations. Mm-hmm. The other problem I have is, is in all this time, 70 years, no one's gone back because they've developed faster starships, certainly. I mean, I know Enterprise is the, now the fastest one, but- the the Enterprise can get there in, in what, maybe weeks, months at most. Um, mm-hmm. Other Earth ships are out in deep space, like Mayweather's family. You know, they're out there d- doing all this trading. It, it just felt like, I don't, I just didn't buy that. Like, yeah. it, it didn't take Enterprise years to get there. So the presumably ships have been going much faster since then. And that just, that was hard to, to, to stomach. I also had trouble with the uh, part of the premise that the colony is lost in a mysterious way because even if a a comet slams into the or an asteroid or whatever it was slams into the northern hemisphere of the planet there should be automated systems in orbit there should be a satellite system that would relay information about this back to earth so it shouldn't have been a mystery and i also have note to self Bring asteroid defense system when colonizing other worlds. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that is kind of interesting. Because I, I didn't think about that, but it, it's true that for if nothing else, for communication back to Earth, they you would think they would have had you know their land station, their land transmitter that would transmit to a satellite that would then shoot right. off into deep space versus doing it locally. You know, just doing right. it like one big transmitter. That blasts into space, right? And in fact, like they said, there was something in the transmitter buffer that was, you know, still still in there after seven. That's quite a quite a buffer that they get there that still hasn't degraded after seven years. Um, uh, actually, I have to say, as from the beginning, I was thinking this will be like a Jimmy Akin's mysterious world in two, when we're still around in like our heads in bottles in two hundred <laughs> years. <laughs> the last Futurama. colony of Terra Nova. Uh, yeah. Uh, what what are the, a little trivia fact? 
It's one mm-hmm. of nine Star Trek episodes with Latin names. Mm. Okay. So Terra yeah. Nova, oh, means, so Terra new Nova means New yeah. Earth in yeah. Latin. Yeah. Sub Rosa, Dramatis Personae, Inter, Ar- Inter Arma Enum Sil- Silent Leges. My Latin pronunciation is great. Okay. So uh, let's back up and translate these as we go. So Sub Rosa <laughs> yeah. is uh, under the rose. It's used as a phrase for secrecy. Dramatis personae is a literary term for yeah, the persons of the drama. Yep. Uh, inter arma enim silent leges. In time of war, the law falls silent. Yeah, this was that was a deep space nine episode. Uh, ex post facto. After the fact. Yeah. Non sequitur. Doesn't make doesn't follow in sequence. Yeah. Alter ego. Another I. <laughs> uh, vox sola. One voice. And see vis pacem parabellum. If you want to see peace, prepare for war. All right, excellent. So, <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, so, um, the, the, so that, and then this one is Terra Nova, which means New Earth, uh, which is uh, it, it. Would we name our first deep space colony that New Earth? I Maybe. Think, I yeah. think that would make sense. But, yeah, I like the, I like some of the planet names in Larry Niven's Known Space. Like, there's a planet called We Made It. well i i look at the names of certain uh places like in australia and uh, new zealand they had a sense of humor when naming places um in fact uh one of our patrons sydney i mean that's hilarious yeah yeah yeah. actually i was thinking one of our uh, new patrons uh which uh well we mentioned at the end of the show is uh uh they're from stamping ground kentucky (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) which i just like uh, like i just want to know what where that name came from, but comes from. Well, but the, you yeah. got you, you got to remember too is I'm living in the town of Malta, Montana. It was <laughs> named for the island, not because we have people from Malta, the island of Malta, who sailed here. No, the railroad spun a globe and hit, tapped it, and where the finger laid, that's where the town got named. Oh, really? <laughs> and wow! So it landed on the island of Malta. That's oh. funny. So <laughs> I, I I once drove through Yeehaw Junction, Florida, and I've been through Cut and Shoot. Texas, which is just north of Houston, and I've been to Two Guns, Arizona, and uh, quite a number of interesting places like that. Yep. Father Corey, you could have lived in Dar es Salaam or <laughs> Ooh, could, exactly. yeah, Dar es Salaam, Montana. <laughs> uh, all right. So, House of Peace. Yeah, we are definitely off track here. So. <laughs> so, so let's say something nice about this episode. Archer yes. has one of the best lines of all time at the beginning of the episode. He walks onto the bridge and says, are we there yet? Yeah, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that was great. Yeah, uh, I, I so one of the things. Okay, so let's get back to things I didn't like. I I don't like this conceit of children who grow up without adults developing this whole other jargon. Like the like we've seen that before. That's not really original. The you know the don't track back. You know they live on the overside and they you speak in shale. I, I just don't. It's hard to buy that. I didn't have a problem with I, I so, so I initially I'm thinking I like the fact that they've developed this alternative language because in isolated communities languages take different directions so they wouldn't yeah. be speaking perfect English or standard English they'd be speaking a modified version my question was it's only once they said it's been 70 years I'm going there's no way that the language would diverge that far in 70 years. And then they added, oh, but nobody over the age of five survived. Right. And that made it more plausible because linguistically, when you have sudden shifts in a language, it's the youth that does it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Linguistics is one of my hobbies. 
And you really can, in just a generation or two, have a big flip in a yep. language, and that's with adults around. So if you take all of the adults out of the picture, um, I could imagine a language flip happening in the three generations that they've been living underground. So there was a there was an original series episode uh, where only the children survived on an Earth yeah. analog planet. Um, Miri. M- Miri, that's right. Uh, but they were like preteens and teenagers. Okay, so uh, by that, I, I I've had five now, four and five year olds. They're you know obviously mm-hmm. they're mm-hmm. uh, how 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 do well, they survive? That's, that's the bigger question. How do they <laughs> right. survive at all? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's it's. I mean, if if they had the if they could live in the settlement, that would be one thing. If these four and five year olds lived. In in the you know the 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 houses with the equipment and the technology, but there are four and five year olds who have to go underground and right. live and survive. I just I I have a hard time believing this is even possible. Yeah, yeah, it's really implausible, and it's not the only really implausible thing in this episode. <laughs> yes, I I thought that. Initially, when they meet these people, so they they live underground and they have all this clay face painting, and they wear these right. clothing made out of the skins of an animal called diggers, which are kind of like armadillo turtles or something. Yeah. And when they get a glimpse of them in the woods, Malcolm says they're about two meters tall, generally humanoid, but have odd scales. And even after they see them up close, and it's clear they just have clay on their faces as face paint. Right. They're not realizing they're humans. And I'm going, how are you not realizing these people are humans? <laughs> yeah. And to Paul, who's been using a tricorder, is the one to say, actually, they're not aliens. They're humans. And it's like that was obvious to me as soon as I saw them. Well, in a galaxy full of aliens with bumpy heads. <laughs> I, I <laughs> <Yeah>. still <laughs> didn't ring true. Right. Th- that's clay, not latex on their heads. and then once they realize they're humans everyone is shocked at the fact they were hostile mayweather has this line he says i don't get it if they're human why were they shooting at us and it's like what a naive century you are living in dude where humans (laughs) never are aggressive towards other humans i mean don't you remember what happened like a hundred years ago there was a huge massive war right and It's these people, when they meet them, you know, they immediately attack the Enterprise crew. And it's like, okay, wow, these people are all going totally North Sentinelese. I mean, we have these uncontacted people here on Earth who will try to kill anybody that visits them. Mm -hmm. And this is just another example of that. Mayweather, you should know this. Right. But apparently everything is so perfect so quickly after World War Three that the concept of humans being aggressive towards other humans is unthinkable and shocking. That kind of came up last week when we were talking about uh, the cloud the, on Voyager. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did, I didn't mention it at the time, but Kim has this line where he talks about uh, visiting France or visiting Paris. And, and uh, Tom Paris tells him, oh, yeah, they even have pickpockets. Pickpockets on Earth? Like as if like no one ever commits any crime on Earth anymore. It's just oh, oh they do Earth, it for everything's the absolutely perfect once the Federation was founded, and <laughs> there's no crime, and everybody yeah. lives together in peace and harmony. Yes. And human yeah. nature has has yeah. been uh, uh, has been changed irrevocably. Sure, 
<laughs> by, by the by the way, and and in such a way that you lose all memory of the past, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> also, speaking of implausible things, these guys are using machine guns. Yes. Yeah. Where are they getting the bullets? You know where? Apparently, uh, there's there's still stockpiles from the colony that lasted for seventy years. Apparently, yeah, yeah. Some or maybe a year old knows how to reload ammo. <laughs> <laughs> or knew how to yeah yeah another implausibility. Right. Who's who who set the broken limbs? Who cured the diseases? Uh, yeah. So what we have is um, it turns out that the o- oldest member of this group of Terranovans is uh, a woman named Nadette, and it turns out she is the, presumably the only surviving original child survivor of the, yeah, of the she, original she's, colony. She's 75 years old, so she was five at the time of the disaster. Her original name was Bernadette. Yes. And mm-hmm. as soon as they say that, that gives you the key to not just her name, but all of the names in the group. None of them are named things like, you know, Fierce Digger or something like that after anything <laughs> in their environment. They are all Earth names that have had the first part of the name circumcised. So right. Bernadette becomes mm. Nadette, Benjamin becomes Jamin, Jump. and Zachary becomes Ackery. Mm. <laughs> He's the because, guy that gets trapped under the tree. <laughs> because five-year-olds don't know their own names. Uh, so so our, Archer ends up you know, showing her a picture of her family, and, the, and she and her son, they think, okay, this is all just uh, lies and attempts for, you know, to take over our colony. And I'm thinking to myself, like, obviously they, they, these people have more advanced technology than you. If they wanted what you have, they would take it from you. I mean, it's just... Yeah. Yeah, uh, they wouldn't need to you know, trick you into it. Um, of course, Phlox then finds a reason why the Novans can't stay where they are because there's you know not only is there radiation on the on the surface, uh, they're also in the caves where they've been living. They're susceptible water to some supply. disease. Well, yeah. the water supply has become oh. contaminated by the radiation, right? And right. so, mm-hmm. so it's like maybe we should forcibly move them back to Earth or move them to another continent. I'm going. Why not give them a water filter? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, to Paul sort of makes this interesting reverse argument. You know, reverse psychology argument on Archer in this one scene where she like says, "Well, just just take them forcibly and bring them home, and you know, reeducate and." Archer's like, you can't, you know, re-educate these people. You can't just take them and plop them back into Earth. And she's like, yeah, that's right. So you have to help them where they are. You know, yeah. she's, I think that's her argument. And uh, so, you know, that returning them to Earth would only do violence to them, further violence. Right. And that's when they finally figure out, well, maybe we could move to a different place on the planet. Because or, conveniently, the Southern Hemisphere didn't get uh, any fallout, and there must be really fierce winds around the equator to keep that from happening. <laughs> right. Uh, and then, uh, of, of course, so they then have to return the, the this woman who had been treated for cancer. She, uh, Phlox had treated her for lung cancer that he discovered. Yeah. Now, and, this uh, is nice. I like the fact that, okay, she's got a disease, and it's not space cancer. You know, right. it's, <laughs> it's just it's, good old-fashioned, yeah. Lung She's cancer. got lung cancer, and yes, people get that even if they don't smoke. Maybe especially if you've been breathing in radioactive air from right. your hemisphere for 75 years. Yeah. 
And but he says it's easily treated and it's just going to take a few hours and they go back up. They bring her back up to the ship. He runs a bunch of tests. She kind of freaks out in the MRI machine because it's Mm. a little tight, although she lives underground. Why she's claustrophobic, I don't know. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I thought we should have seen, you know, uh, some freak outs as soon as they get on the shuttle to fly up. I mean, there's going to be atmospheric turbulence on the way up. Exactly. Right. That would be freaking out worthy for people who have who who are who are live in solid underground places and have never been in the air before. Right. Not to mention like being high up above the ground. That would probably be right. pretty freaky. Yeah. Out. But uh but he gives her a series of injections and cures her lung cancer in a few hours, and I think that's awesome. And uh so and, then, and believable by the twenty second century. Yes, yeah. Uh so the then of course when they return, we kind of alluded to this. As the shuttle pod lands, it falls through a sinkhole, and uh, and, then, and then of course suddenly Jimin is totally claustrophobic, and the shuttle is like, "Open it up! Open it up! Open it up!" <laughs> right, see, right. I, I gotta get out. See that—that's more the reaction you would expect to have gotten for the flight up. Was yeah, right. Make the stop. Make the stop. <laughs> gotta get out of here. And and in the process of like going, you know, uh, getting out of the shuttle. I'm not sure why the whole shuttle pod falling through the ground thing was a part of I'm not sure what well, that added to the story. It creates an emergency situation where Jimin and Archer have to work together and thus have to trust each other. And it overcomes the it's part of the paint by numbers, empathy, reconciliation plot. But, it adds the story that was probably way too short to begin with. Right. So they had to add something to it. Right, because yeah. the the whole part of where they discover the the Nova named Akari, who had been fallen in a well, Timmy's in the well with the, and he needs Lassie mm-hmm. to get him out. Uh, it, you know that whole thing was that that we have to trust each other to save someone, work together, uh, and build trust, and then so magically we're all friends again afterward. Uh, so the, the whole time, so so Akari is in this well as it's filling, because of course, and uh, so that puts a time limit on on how fast they have to work. He's under this giant log, and they're trying to lift it. I'm going, you know, that phase pistol in your pocket probably could help. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I'm like, oh, hey, they figured out how I can blast it with a phase pistol, and it will make it e- easier to lift. Uh, so, so, of course. And then, uh, you know, the, of course, after that, then uh, Jamin and Nadette convince everyone that we can trust the Sky people and let, we can move to a different place. Um, as the episode finishes out, uh, it. It's so you see Archer, Tucker, T'Pol, and Mayweather eating in the captain's dining room. Yeah, and it's like when does Mayweather rate being in the captain's dining room? I think because he this is when uh, Archer is going to ask him to write the report for Starfleet. Okay, because he's okay. a big a mystery guy. But Mayweather brings up he brings up uh, the other unsolved mysteries, including mm-hmm. Judge Crater and Amelia Earhart, which. Uh, Both it, of which it, will be on Mysterious World in the future. Yes. Thank you, okay. everyone, for asking. <laughs> so Judge Crater, I was going to ask that. I didn't look it up. But Judge Crater is a real mystery, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. He was a judge that vanished in the first part of the 20th century. Okay. Uh, Amelia Earhart, of course, in the Star Trek universe, we know that gets solved in the 22nd. It was still unsolved in the 22nd century, but gets solved in the 24th century because Amelia Earhart was kidnapped by aliens and taken to the Delta Quadrant, yep. where the where Voyager will find her. Um, although, um, if you listen to uh, Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World <laughs> in October, I'm not sure if this is coming up before or after it, but uh, very soon around when this comes out, uh, you'll listen to what Jimmy has to say about the mysterious disappearance. Spoiler, it's not aliens. It's not aliens. Ah, darn it. It's, darn it. I always say it's always aliens. <laughs> Maybe she's trapped in Area 51 with all the aliens. No. 
Yes. <laughs> I keep telling people they don't hide stuff in Area 51. That's the one they tell us about. Never mind. Yeah. That's it's a whole nother show. So uh, that's and that's sort of where we wrap things up with this episode. Uh, like like you said at the beginning, Jimmy, you know, like we, like we both said, it's paint by numbers. It's not. There's nothing yeah. really. Um, yeah. Mostly harmless. Yeah. Yep. I did. I just a couple of final notes on it. Uh-huh. I did think they had good primitive set dressing. Mm-hmm. I thought that was nice. So I good production values on that. Mm-hmm. We uh, entirely blew past the fact that Malcolm gets hit with a machine gun bullet, and oh, yeah. they uh, are, and they keep him uh, hostage for a while. Archer has this meltdown where it's like, if I can't make first contact with humans, I don't have any business being out here. And so then after that, he beams down unarmed to the people with machine guns that have been shooting you. It's like, how naive can you be? <laughs> mm-hmm. On the other hand, it was nice to see Eric Avari as Jamin. Uh, yes. Eric Avari is, uh, if you don't, if you're not familiar with the name, you may know his face because he's been in a lot of science fiction. Yep. Uh, he played a Vedic on Deep Space Nine, but he's more famous in my mind as Doctor Daniel Jackson's father-in-law on mm-hmm. Stargate. He's yep. uh, Share Share's yep. uh, uh, father. Right. Yep. Right. Yep. He's he as they say. He works. He's he's an actor who works. He's been in yeah. everything. <laughs> yeah, you, you look at his IMDb listing, and it's just role after role after role. And it's all, you know, yeah. second-level characters, supporting characters, you know, characters that right. re- reoccur, but nothing, like, really, he's, he's not, like, a front-runner character. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But it's always nice to see him. Yes. Oh, yes. He's, he's, he's he a great a actor. Job. Yeah, he does a good job. Excellent. I do have one yep. quick thing. I liked the, the fact they named their... Uh, the ship, uh, the colonist ship, the Condestoga. Condestoga, yeah. Condestoga, yeah. and of course, you know, being in, in the West, that's a name that we're familiar with because a lot, mm-hmm. the, a lot of the settlers use the Condestoga wagons to get, uh, to West. come West. Especially if you played Oregon Trail, you know that name well. Yeah, that's right. I like the, uh, the, the, fa- the, the fact in the, in the show where they said when they got the ship to the, the planet, the ship itself was disassembled and used to build the colony, which, yeah. which kind of... it. It, it betrays the mindset that they were going and not coming back. This was their mm-hmm. mindset was to separate from Earth. And, and that, I, did li- I did like that uh, part of it. And they said it not just did they dismantle the ship, but it was designed to be dismantled right. yeah. so that it could form the colony. So that shows shrewd resource management. And that's, that's absolutely plausible that if, if when we start colonizing places like Mars, that's how they're going to design the ships. Right, right. They're going to they're gonna send ships there that will then become the places that people live yep excellent so we do have some feedback i wanted to Ooh. uh to read uh, from from listener um the, on our discussion of the search for spock episode 66 the masked chicken sent a long email which i will not read the entirety of <laughs> uh, i have to say he says at first uh, i have a few words yeah uh-huh. if you Great have to a, hear if, from the chicken though yeah yeah yep. uh he did mention that uh he's been a, a commenter on your your blog for a long time jimmy so yeah um so, uh, first, on the Genesis device, he says, the Genesis device acted by, by Khan seems to have obliterated his ship and the Mutara Nebula in favor of reforming the matter content into a planet. As such, this would create tremendous gravitational waves as the matter reintegrated, so the idea of instability in gravitational fields is highly plausible. In the earlier simulation video by Carol Marcus, the planet was simply overwritten, implying no substantial change in the center of mass hence very small gravitational distortions. So it depends on the exact mechanism uh, used by the Genesis device 
as to whether or not substantial gravitational field instabilities will result. Okay. And for people who may wonder, yes, the mass chicken is a physicist. So um, (laughs) (laughs) I I accept what he says on that. Although I had always understood just the planet to be overwritten rather than pulled together out of uh, nebula matter. Well, that was that was the original intent of the Genesis device was to take a dead planet and overwrite it. That's why they're they're looking for planets to uh, to use it on. Yeah. Originally. And, and because what apparently said, yeah. life is just crawling all over every rock out there. <laughs> yep. That's right. Well, it was not just that it had to be dead, but that it had to fit within the, like, be in the Goldilocks zone and be of a particular, um, you know, mass. And I think that, I think there was, like, all these ca- re- requirements, including not having any life on it. Uh, but, yeah, it was a bit of a, a stretch. So the second comment, he says, is, uh, in a mock time, Spock says, I had hoped I would be spared the ancient tribes but eventually they catch up with you, implying that he had gone a number of cycles without giving into the pond far. Unlike hmm. the Genesis planet Spock, who had no higher faculties and was driven by instinct, original series Spock had a highly rational brain, so could exercise control to some extent. So it's likely that he did not experience an overwhelming urge starting in early adulthood, uh, like the Genesis planet Spock did. This is further supported by his half-human parentage, which would blunt the effects of pond far to some extent, probably. Hmm. Okay. So, okay, that's a good response. Um, and then uh, he went into a very long explanation of some mathematical concepts that went over my head because I'm not oh, cool. that good at math. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, I, won't, I won't get into all that, but... Uh, the, oh, send but, me the email. Yeah, I, oh, I, I thought you got the email. I'll make sure that... You yeah, it's, to, it's, it's good good feedback. He did send it to our uh, our trek at sqpn.com email address. So um, uh, that, that goes to all three of us, or should anyway. So we'll double check that. Uh, so... I think that uh, does it for the moment. Before we finish out, I'd like to take a minute to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Star Trek, including Tom C., Michael O., Francesc B., Kenny E., and James N. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Star Trek and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So that's it from us. What did you think of Terra Nova, the Enterprise episode that we just discussed? Let us know by visiting sqpn.com slash trek or the SQPN Facebook page, facebook.com slash starquestmedia. And you could also send us an email to trek at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the very long named The Butcher's Life Cares Not for the Lamb's Cry. <laughs> A first and it season. Doesn't. Yeah, that's right. The first season discovery episode. Until then, Father Cory Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Star Trek. No, thank you, Dom. And Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Thank you, and live long and prosper. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Star Trek on Star Quest. And remember, uh, I'm not speaking shale.